Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. Today, the criminal case against Donald Trump, the one that was most likely to be completed before the 2024 election, special counsel Jack Smith's federal election interference case. Today, it effectively came to a standstill. It was frozen, or in legal terminology, its deadlines were stayed. Two weeks ago, the judge in that case, Judge Tanya Chutkin, denied Trump's claim that the entire case be made null and void because of, quote, presidential immunity. Trump's lawyers immediately appealed that decision and asked Judge Chutkin to stay the case until the appeals court can rule on the question of immunity. Well, today, Judge Chutkin granted that request, and she clarified exactly what that means for the future of this case. If jurisdiction is returned to this court, the court will, consistent with its duty to ensure both a speedy trial and fairness for all parties, Consider at that time whether to retain or continue the dates of any still future deadlines and proceedings, including the trial scheduled for March 4th, 2024. So this case is on hold until the immunity question makes its way through the appeals process. And once that is done, Judge Chutkin will see whether the trial schedule still works or if it has to be delayed. And that means that the final decision on this appeal and how quickly that decision is made is very much a live issue that could potentially delay or even destroy the special counsel's case altogether. But Jack Smith is not just rolling over here. Earlier this week, Smith asked the Supreme Court to take up the issue directly and as soon as possible to try and head this whole thing off at the pass. Trump's lawyers have another week to respond to that request. But even if going straight to the highest court in the land does not expedite the process here, Mr. Smith is working on the lower-level courts as well. On Monday, Smith asked the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals to fast-track its appeals process on this immunity question. And today, Trump's legal team filed their response. Now, you would think that Trump's lawyers might want their own appeal heard and decided on as soon as possible, if they thought they would win it. But apparently, they do not. They want a delay, because that is their main strategy in all of this. Let me read you one of the actual arguments Trump's lawyers made in court today in their, in their formal filing to the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. This proposed schedule would require attorneys to, and support staff to work around the clock through the holidays, inevitably disrupting family and travel plans. It is as if the special counsel growled with his Grinch fingers, nervously drumming, I must find some way to keep Christmas from coming. It is one of the most spectacularly unserious legal arguments I have ever heard, and one of the most serious cases this country has ever grappled with. They literally called Jack Smith the Grinch. And the whole thing is extra comical when you think about how this entire case is about Trump's actions in the lead up to January 6th, when Trump and his lawyers worked around the clock 
through the holidays to try and overturn the results of the 2020 election. For example, on the last night of Hanukkah in 2020, December 18th, Sidney Powell, Michael Flynn, Rudy Giuliani, they all pitched Trump conspiracy theory after conspiracy theory in a, quote, unhinged West Wing meeting. The same night, the last night of Hanukkah, Trump asked his followers to come to D.C. on January 6th saying, be there, we'll be wild. On Christmas Eve, Trump lawyer John Eastman wrote his now infamous memo explaining how Vice President Pence could stop the certification of the vote on January 6th. On the first night of Christmas, the federal indictment alleges that Trump asked Pence to overturn the 2020 election on Christmas Day. On the third night of Christmas, December 27th, Trump implored top Justice Department officials to just say the election was corrupt and leave the rest to me and the Republican congressman. And on the day after New Year's, Trump was on the phone with Georgia's Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, asking him to find Trump nearly 12,000 votes. How did they find time to wrap the presents or light the menorahs? What about the stockings? Was there no Christmas ham that year? Apparently, in Trump world, it is fine to work over the holidays if the work is trying to overthrow American democracy. But when the work is the most important legal case in modern American history, well, then suddenly Jack Smith is the literal Grinch. Attorneys need eggnog, too, you know. Special counsel is amazingly already ahead of even this argument. Within hours of the Trump Grinch filing, the special counsel's office immediately filed their response and asked the appeals court to respond tonight. And the D.C. Circuit Court did just that. The Trump team's legal work will now be due on December 23rd, two days before Christmas, eight days after the last night of Hanukkah, and three days before Kwanzaa. Plenty of time for gingerbread houses. And if Trump's legal team still somehow has gripes with the 23rd of December, I would like to remind them that on December 23rd of 2020, not only did Trump have time to pardon 26 people, including Paul Manafort, Roger Stone, and Charles Kushner, but Trump also found the time to call the lead investigator in Georgia's Secretary of State's office to urge her to look for wrongdoing in the election results and tell her that she would be praised when the right answer comes out. It is abundantly clear that Mr. Trump does not, but every who down in Whoville wants to quit the delay stuff a lot. Joining me now are Chuck Rosenberg, former U.S. attorney and senior FBI official, who is now an MSNBC contributor, and MSNBC legal analyst, our not-so-secret weapon, Lisa Rubin. Chuck and Lisa, um, well, I'd ask you, Lisa, um, are you preferential? Do you prefer the Lorax or the cat in the hat in your legal briefings, or is the Grinch sort of the, the go-to? <laughs> I actually think this is more like green eggs and ham. I was oh, thinking about that okay. tonight. And Trump and his lawyers are the Sam I am of their own situation. They are endlessly trying to peddle as green eggs and ham this internally contradictory mm-hmm. story. And yet all of the judges that they encounter, unlike the character and the Seuss book, do not want to eat green eggs and ham, and yet they don't give up. Yes. They keep ped- well. First, I mean, I, I will ask you both, and Chuck. Let me go to you here. I, I, I am not a lawyer. I say this all the time. I did not go to law school, but citing the Grinch and making the excuse that a try a, an appeals process should not be expedited because people need to celebrate the Christmas holidays seems far fetched to me. What was your reaction to that? 
Well, I thought it was juvenile. I'm glad you went to Lisa first because she was obviously well prepared on the <laughs> Dr. Seuss references. I am not. But I will tell you this. Um, on any holiday, military officials, federal law enforcement officials, intelligence officials are working. That's what they do. They work because the work is important and the work is necessary. And so the notion that the most important criminal case in the country can't be litigated by attorneys over the holidays is juvenile and nonsensical. And that was my reaction, Alex. Uh, by the way, calling people names in legal pleadings really doesn't get you any sort of traction. Uh, Jack Smith ignored it, and the courts will ignore it. I promise you that. Yeah, I mean, I don't even think this plays to Trump's base, right? <laughs> Just the idea that somehow Jack Smith is a Grinch-like figure. Setting it aside for the minute, I, I, I wonder what you make of the appeals, the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals decision tonight, just a few hours ago, to sort of move this thing forward. It's three-judge panel, two of them appointed by Biden, one appointed by George H.W. Bush. Yeah, I think it's really interesting that they made the decision to move this along, particularly given that the Supreme Court, Alex, has already set a deadline for Trump to submit his brief in opposition to the cert petition that Jack Smith has put before them. So we've talked before, and you've talked with other guests, about this two-tracked approach that Jack Smith is trying to pursue. Now we've got a three-day window sort of in between Trump's two briefs being due. His Supreme Court brief due on the 20th, his brief now to the D.C. Circuit due 10 days from now on the 23rd. If the Supreme Court wants to be what we would call good colleagues, mm -hmm. they'll make a decision about whether to grant cert in that three-day window. Just to, to grant cert, you mean effectively saying, yes, we are going to rule on this immunity Correct. question. And if we're going to rule on this immunity question, then that obviates the need for any further briefing in the D.C. Circuit because the Supreme Court is supreme. Right. The highest court in the land. Mm -hmm. uh, how do you read the decision here, Chuck? Is this the... D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals basically hedging its bets against the Supreme Court and what they're going to do, given the sort of the, the different makeups on these two courts? Well, I'm glad it's proceeding on a parallel track, Alex. I think that's appropriate. I mean, both courts were asked to um, expedite this important question, and that's what they're doing. I don't know that they're hedging their bets. I think the best solution, of course, is for the Supreme Court to take the case now. I mean, they're going to get it eventually, one way or the other, but to take the case now and to resolve the issue. It's not a frivolous issue. I think the government wins it. In fact, I'm reasonably confident that the government wins it. But since it's going to be um, litigated in front of the Supreme Court, let's do it now. Let's resolve it as quickly as possible and let the parties go back to Judge Chutkin, the trial judge in, uh, in D.C., and hit the play button again and get the case moving. That seems like the most logical thing to me. Yeah, I mean, no matter what, Judge Chudkin has issued a stay, right? Oh the thing God. is frozen in time. That's right. As it stands right now. And I wonder, A, how surprising you think that is on the part of Judge Chudkin and how meaningful that is in terms of Trump's broader goal to delay everything here. It's not surprising in that Jack Smith effectively conceded that that was the right result, that an appeal on a motion to dismiss where the questions presented are ones of constitutional import, his presidential immunity argument is effectively a constitutional one. He's saying, yes, 
I acknowledge that that deprives the trial court of jurisdiction and things have to pause. At the same time, what's notable about Judge Chutkin's decision today is her carving out room for her still to exert some authority over the gag order, which she can still enforce, over Trump's conditions of release. Alex, those are the rules by which he has to play as a free person having been criminally indicted, and over the protective order that governs the voluminous discovery that he complained of in his brief to the D.C. Circuit today. That means, as I was telling one of our colleagues today, Trump can't walk into a hallway a la Regina George and Mean Girls with her burn book photocopies, throw up the discovery into the public domain and let everyone see that which Jack Smith and the Department of Justice do not want us to have vantage points into at this point. All right. So that Mm -hmm. all has to stay effectively under wraps. But um, Chuck, the jury selection in this seems like it's going to be a prolonged process. And that has to stop while this appeals court plays out. Right. I would assume that's meaningful time that the, the judge is losing here and that the special counsel's office is losing. Uh, potentially, Alex, and that's a problem. I, I think Lisa described it correctly. There are things that will remain in place. The case didn't evaporate. It didn't disappear. It simply paused. And so the protective order and the gag order uh, and other things like it remain in place. But the parties cannot go back in front of Judge Chutkin and continue to litigate other matters, and like picking a jury uh, while the case is on appeal. So you're right. Uh, uh, jury selection will be paused. Obviously very important. In a case like this, somewhat cumbersome. And that's where you begin to see the potential delay tactics taking hold and taking effect, right? So the quicker that this gets resolved and it gets back to a point we were discussing earlier, the quicker the Supreme Court hears the case and decides it, the faster Judge Chutkin can go back, hit the play button, and resume all the things you need to do before trial, like picking a jury. I don't know that the March um, trial date is doomed, but it's certainly endangered. Um, that's going to be, I mean, I think that's, it's hard to hear that, given the fact that this case is in many ways the best shot the country has of determining whether or not the, the president, the, few, the former and potentially future president of the United States is a felon. Um, Double jeopardy is another case that Trump's lawyers are making alongside the presidential immunity claim. They're saying that effectively because Trump was already impeached for actions around January 6th, he can't be held accountable again. Um, That's been kind of waved. I I feel like we've been waved off that as a viable former defense, but the Supreme Court said it's going to rule on that. How do you, what do you make of uh, the double jeopardy defense? You know, when Trump, when Chuck was saying earlier that the issues that Trump is presenting here are serious, they are serious, and they're issues of first impression for the Supreme Court. However, between the two, between his sort of like structural absolute presidential immunity argument and his double jeopardy argument, I don't think it's a serious argument to say because he was impeached but not convicted by the Senate, he can't be criminally prosecuted. There's nothing, as Judge Chutkin said in her decision, in the text structure or history of the Constitution that would demand that result. And in fact, there is a provision in the Constitution, the impeachment judgment clause, that would lead you to the opposite conclusion based on its actual plain text. Well, I mean, if anything, it's uh, the Trump team throwing spaghetti at the wall and the fact that the Supreme Court, um, this is such a like difficult metaphor, is scraping all the spaghetti potentially off the wall at the same time by deciding to take all of it up seems meaningful here. Um, Chuck Rosenberg, I'm sorry we sprung all the Zeus trivia on you without adequate preparation. You passed it with flying colors. Lisa Rubin, Green Eggs and Ham will never sound the same again. Thank you for your time. <laughs>
Uh, we have a lot more ahead tonight. Abortion is back before the Supreme Court. What the justices are considering and how their decision could impact women, even in states where abortion is legal. But first, the impossible logic behind House Republicans' newly launched impeachment inquiry against Joe Biden. Congressman Adam Schiff joins me on that coming up next. Stay with us. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater. And this is your wake up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. During my battles. During my battle with addiction, my parents were there for me. They literally saved my life. In the depths of my addiction, I was extremely irresponsible with my finances. But to suggest that is grounds for an impeachment inquiry is beyond the absurd. It's shameless. There's no evidence to support the allegations that my father was financially involved in my business because it did not happen. There is no fairness or decency in what these Republicans are doing. That was Hunter Biden today outside the U.S. Capitol, taking accountability for his actions and calling out Republicans for a sham impeachment. Hunter Biden is facing nine charges of tax evasion in California and three gun charges in the state of Delaware. Now, in any normal election cycle, Republicans would be everywhere talking about the president's son in a swirl of tax evasion and gun charges. But this is not a normal election cycle. And Republicans have spent the last three years telling their base that the Biden family is orchestrating some kind of grand criminal conspiracy, a conspiracy that directly implicates President Biden in all kinds of nefarious acts. As it stands, they have precisely zero evidence to back up that claim, but that has not stopped Republicans from raising expectations sky high. And now they are in a real bind. The very real charges against Hunter Biden kind of pale in comparison to what conservatives have been promising. And so Republicans and conservative media are actually downplaying the crimes Hunter Biden is charged with, claiming those charges are actually an effort to cover up the much bigger and so far imaginary crimes of President Joe Biden. 
They've been sitting on this potential indictment. Why do they release it now? Is this a further cover up? I'm just wondering if the timing of this indictment on Hunter Biden uh, is uh, a partly cover up. I totally agree. The timing is suspect. These are supporters of Joe who are pushing Hunter in front of the bus and saying, OK, we got to feed the masses a little bit to keep them off of Joe's scent. It does have a bit of a feeling of the Biden folks creating bad news to cover up other bad news. And the fact that they're covering this up, Sean, it's not only the crime the Bidens have committed. It's the cover-up. Weiss may have uh, indicted Hunter Biden to protect him from ah, having to be deposed yes. in, the, in the House Oversight Committee yes. on Wednesday. He but indicted him to protect him. Yes. The classic rubric. The Republican theory of the case here is laughable. Even the most generous reading of it makes no sense. But Republicans are still hanging on to this theory as the basis for an impeachment inquiry into Joe Biden. Tonight, the House voted along party lines, 221 to 212, to open a formal impeachment inquiry into the president, despite having no evidence of wrongdoing. Every Republican, including the so-called moderates in swing districts, voted in favor of it. So how does this end? What do Republicans do now that they have opened this door with promises to expose some grand plot when there is no reason to believe that grand plot actually exists? And how do Democrats respond? I'll talk to Congressman Adam Schiff, who led Trump's first impeachment, about all of that coming up. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater. And this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. The House has now spoken, and I think pretty loudly, pretty clearly, with every single Republican voting in favor of moving into this official impeachment inquiry phase of our constitutional duty uh, to do oversight. So when a majority of the House goes on record in support of an official impeachment inquiry uh, with the power that resides solely in the House of Representatives, this impeachment power, I think that sends a message. As Congressman Jim Jordan points out today, every single House Republican, all 221 of them, voted to formally open an impeachment inquiry into President Biden. And yes, it it sure does send a message, but perhaps not the one Mr. Jordan thinks it does. Joining me now is Congressman Adam Schiff of California, member of the House Judiciary Committee. He also served as the lead House manager in Donald Trump's first impeachment trial. Congressman Schiff, thank you so much for being here. I we are told, those of us on the outside of the House of Representatives, that there are these phantom Republican moderates who understand the gravity of what this impeachment inquiry represents and the tenuous position they have as Republicans from districts that Joe Biden won in 2020. And yet they still voted for this. 
What do you make of the entire Republican conference supporting an impeachment inquiry? Well, they're cowards. Uh, You know, I think you can fairly say of the so-called moderate Republicans in the House, they're always there when you don't need them. Uh, But when there's actually something of consequence, they cave. Uh, You know, they spent years and particularly this year investigating Joe Biden. They came up with nothing uh, and they admitted as much. So now they're going to have a formal impeachment inquiry so they can find even more of nothing. Uh, they they don't know what they're looking for. They don't know what crimes they even want to suggest Joe Biden committed. All they do know is Donald Trump wants this. Donald Trump needs this. Donald Trump is going to make their life difficult if they don't give it to him. Those moderate Republicans don't want Donald Trump coming after them and ginning up a primary against them. Uh, and so they're going to do this to dilute the stain of his former impeachments to gratify you know their master in Mar-a-Lago. They also know they have no affirmative, positive agenda for the country that even their own members can agree on. They're doing nothing on housing costs. They're doing nothing on health care. They're doing nothing on climate. They're doing nothing on guns. They can't agree among themselves on any policy. So what are we doing? What have we spent the year doing? Uh, well, they, they censured me for leading Trump's impeachment. Uh, they uh, vacated their own speaker's chair, and now they want to Uh, begin an impeachment proceeding against Joe Biden. Uh, This is how they're occupying the nation's time when there are serious challenges like funding Ukraine and Israel uh, that we should be doing. You you, you make mention of the master down at Mar-a-Lago, and it seems pretty obvious that this is in service to the man they call Orange Jesus inside the Republican conference. And, And yet it sort of is a strange strategy, right? If the point is to humiliate Biden by impeaching him to give him that scarlet letter. It only brings up the fact that Trump himself has been impeached twice. Like, how do you even begin to talk about this on the campaign trail without inevitably ending up back in the place you want to pretend doesn't exist, which is Trump got impeached twice? Well, what they hope to do is muddy the waters. They hope to persuade people, oh, you know, Trump was impeached twice, but it was just politics. Uh, And now uh, we're going to impeach Biden. And that's just politics. Uh, They're going to try to, you know, what about ism? They're going to try to uh, establish some kind of false equivalence when there is no equivalence. Uh, Donald Trump was impeached for his own abuse of power, for his own commission of high crimes and misdemeanors, for withholding hundreds of millions in military aid for Ukraine while that nation was at a war to extort Zelensky into helping smear his opponent uh, in the first impeachment and for inciting a violent attack on the Capitol in the second impeachment. His actions, his misconduct, his abuse of power, his uh, constitutional high crimes and misdemeanors. By contrast, they're proceeding with an impeachment inquiry into Joe Biden based on Hunter Biden based on Hunter Biden's conduct, which they have not been able to tie to the president. Uh, It couldn't be a more stark contrast, but they hope that if they throw up enough chaff, maybe they can confuse the public and essentially persuade people that what Donald Trump did, they should discount because everybody does it. You mentioned Hunter Biden, and we played a little bit of um, sound from his remarks outside the Capitol this morning. I found it actually really effective and somewhat moving to hear someone who's been grappling with addiction sort of take ownership of of his wrongdoing. And I wonder how, well, A, what your reaction to his comments, his, his remarks was, 
and also how important it is to hear from Hunter Biden in the middle of all of this. Uh, You know, I did think it was pretty powerful. Uh, It reminded me, too, of a voicemail. I think the Republicans leaked some time ago of the president uh, making it, leaving a message for his son that he loved him, that he knew he was going through a hard time, uh, that he was there for for his son. Uh, And I remember, you know, watching the Republicans push this out and thinking, why do they think that this is going to somehow uh, engender support for the GOP among the public, uh, I think the public is going to see a father concerned about his son. Uh, and there are enough people in the country that have had tragic experiences in their family with loved ones with substance abuse, uh, uh, addiction, uh, that, uh, uh, you know, uh, attacking a, a father for being a father, I don't think is a good political strategy. But I, I do think part of it, Alex, is they know the president loves his son. Uh, And this is a way to hurt the president, not just politically, but to hurt him personally. And in that sense, the Republican conference in the Congress is just like Donald Trump. Donald Trump loves to hurt people uh, in the way he thinks is most effective to wound them. Uh, It's a fundamentally indecent uh, aspect of, of Trump's very malignant personality. And here you see Republicans emulating it. Yeah, the cruelty is the point, which Adam Serra coined at The Atlantic, and it stands true for the entire Republican conference in a moment like this. Um, Congressman Schiff, given how organized the Democrats were, how much evidence they had before they began their impeachment inquiry, what are the implications for an impeachment inquiry that's going off to find the evidence, just in terms of the time frame we're operating under, the amount of cost to the American taxpayer, and like what they actually come up with which may not have anything to do with any of the things they are talking about at this moment. You know, I think the biggest costs to the American people are the opportunity costs. That is, while they occupy all the time and attention of the House with these impeachment proceedings and contempt proceedings and vacate the speaker proceedings and expulsion proceedings, they're not dealing with the nation's problems. We're about to break for the holidays and there's a war going on in Ukraine. There's a war going on uh, in the Middle East uh, and, uh, and and Congress is failing to act. And uh, and so the biggest cost is the opportunity cost. But I think they're also setting themselves up for a terrible end because these things have a way of gaining momentum. Now that they've started this inquiry, Donald Trump is going to insist it come to a conclusion with an impeachment that they probably don't have the votes for. And so they're going to be in a position of either disappointing Trump, disappointing their MAGA, you know, Fox viewing base, uh, having set up all these expectations, they're going to either have to say, sorry, there was no there there, or try to force a vote, force these vulnerable Republicans to vote uh, and potentially lose that vote. But it's a frankly a loser for the country any way they take it. A loser for the country from the least productive, the second least productive Congress in modern American history. Congressman Adam Schiff, thank you for your time and and wisdom tonight. I appreciate it. Thank you. Still ahead this evening, it has been a year and a half since the Supreme Court overturned the constitutional right to an abortion. And already today, the justices have decided that they might go get back to it. Once again, more on the new case that the High Court has decided to review. That's next.
Today, the Supreme Court agreed to hear a case that could decide future access to a pill used in more than half of abortions in this country, Mifepristone. Anti-abortion activists have been seeking to limit its use, if not take it off the market completely. And now the Supreme Court is going to decide whether Mifepristone will still be accessible via telemedicine and through the mail up to 10 weeks of pregnancy. Or whether pregnant women, many of whom now live in abortion deserts, will have their access to the pill cut off at seven weeks of pregnancy and are required to have several in-person doctor visits to obtain a prescription. The high court now finds itself in the awkward position of ruling on abortion 18 months after decided that the matter should be left to the states. Oral arguments are expected early next year, and the justices could rule by the end of June. Joining me now is Irene Carmone, senior correspondent for New York Magazine. Thank you for being back here. I mean, it's like whiplash every other day. There's some sort of heinous infringement on reproductive rights. And now the high court is taking up Mifepristone. First, let's talk, Erin, about sort of what these re- potentially newly reimposed restrictions could mean for people seeking access to abortion, right? The Mifepristone available only until seven weeks of pregnancy seems meaningful. Right. And who can prescribe it yep. and the, w- the manner in which it can be prescribed. Telemedicine so, or by mail. Exactly. I, I, I think the big picture here, of course, this is an administrative law case. But before you fall asleep, anyone watching this, this is about a blue state abortion ban. The dear wish of the people who concocted this case out of whole cloth have invented standing. These are anti-abortion doctors who have brought the case, despite the fact that they do not ever prescribe this pill and they can't find any kind of harm to people who have accessed the pill. They are doing so because they understand that this pill, uh, the more you restrict it, the more you, you, or let's put it this way, this pill represents freedom, it represents privacy. In states where abortion is restricted, people have been able to say, drive right across the border, get this pill from a mobile clinic, from a truck, uh, through the mail to a P.O. box. They understand that abortions have actually gone up since Dobbs because of increased access. And Ah. a huge part of that is that the privacy, um, the the quickness, the lack of multiple visits uh, that is represented by this highly safe drug. Mifepristone. Yes, Mifepristone and misoprostol taken in combination. And so they understand that what they need to be doing is restricting in places like here in New York, California, New Mexico, Colorado, that have become havens for people living in abortion-restrictive states. And so... What they really wanted to do, and this is so crazy, is get a time machine, go back to 2000, yes. and say that, that all of uh, the approval of this pill, which, again, 24 years almost ago, uh, should be undone. Now, the big thing that happened today is the Supreme Court saying, okay, that is too crazy right, We're not us. going back to the original approval of this drug they, back in 2000. They would dearly love for that to happen. And if they could, they could take away more, the option that more than half of abortion patients prefer. Yeah. Um, so it... If they take this halfway step where, like, the Fifth Circuit tried to kind of have it both ways, is it based in science? Is it based in what's safe? Is it based in process? Does, does not appear to be the case. So the question is, is the Supreme Court coming in to say, okay, this is absurd, or yeah. coming in to say, let's make up yet another compromise and call ourselves so moderate on this issue? Right. The compromise being roll back the regulations to what they were in 2015. That are working just fine. Right. There and which no would have issues. profound effects because in 2015, there were not abortion deserts across the United right. States. Mifepristone wasn't as important 
as or critical as it is today. And Alex, there's been a whole body of research in recent years about uh, do people understand how to take this safely? Can they do telemedicine in order to find out where they are in their pregnancy, whether they're contraindicated? A large body of research has been built up to show that this is very safe for people mm. to take in these ways. So not only is there the need, there's also the demonstrated realization that this is a safe option. And, and it's a safe option for people who are getting it legally and also people who are forced to take matters into their own hands. Uh, when you look at the court and what it did in Dobbs, I think a lot of people are considerably worried about how they might rule on this. They're taking up the issue of standing, though, which, I mean, how, what, how do you interpret the, the, the sort of way in which the court is, is saying it's going to rule on this? Well, to be fair to the court, I mean, typically, if you, if you say the Supreme Court is going to take an abortion case, you want to crawl under this table. But the Fifth Circuit did create this situation that the Supreme Court didn't allow to go into effect that would have limited it. Yeah. So it's actually kind of good news for the Supreme Court to take this up if they choose. Were they not to take it up, then those restrictions would go into effect. Should they choose to unroll those, uh, to, to undo the Fifth Circuit's opinion? But what's also good news is that they have not even taken seriously what the conservative Christian soldier of the district court did, which was to take at face value that the entire approval of this drug should be undone. So there is a chance that this is kind of conditionally good news. Um, the standing question of like these, these, these doctors- Anti-abortion activists. Do not, cannot show that there's any harm to them, cannot show that they in any way deal with mifepristone, cannot show harm to their patients either. Um, but- it may be necessary for them to come in and say, look, we're not going to talk about the standing issue, but we are going to say whether the Fifth Circuit was right or not. And at least they have not put the entire approval of the drug on the table. And I think it's a sign, you know, the Supreme Court went so far by going even further than what they were initially asked to do to yep. overturn Roe v. Wade. And, and it may be that even they realize that this blowback is something that they now need to kind of moderate a little bit, even on this issue. Yeah, coming two days or three days after the case in Texas where a woman is forced out of the state because the Texas Supreme Court says she's not dying enough to have an abortion. I mean, it's just a, a, an appalling turn of events. Maybe it resonates with the court. We will see. Irene Carmone, thank you as always, my friend, for your thoughts and great analysis on this. Thank you. Still ahead this evening, the New Deal that some officials are calling the beginning of the end of fossil fuels. We will talk to journalist David Wallace-Wells about what the COP28 climate summit was able to accomplish and what it left undone. That is next. For the first time since countries began needing to fight climate change nearly 30 years ago, a global pact to move away from fossil fuels has been approved. The agreement reached during negotiations for COP28 in Dubai is not legally binding. It cannot force any action. Instead, it calls upon nearly 200 countries to transition away from fossil fuels and energy systems in a just, orderly, and equitable manner and to triple the amount of renewable energy by 2030. Today, President Biden called the agreement a historic milestone, and a U.N. climate official dubbed it the beginning of the end for fossil fuels. But critics say the language of the agreement does not go nearly far enough, and they fear that it could allow wealthier countries who emit the most fossil fuels to continue delaying significant action. Joining me now is David Wallace-Wells, opinion writer for The New York Times and author of The Uninhabitable Earth, Life After Warming. David, thank you for being here. I, I don't want to rain on the parade immediately, right? Like, this seemed like a step. <laughs> You're like, no. Um, it took 30 years. Yeah, it, well, it, that is not 
um, heartening. But the fact that there is this idea that the word fossil fuels has been uttered publicly as something that needs to be, if not phased out, turned away from. How did you understand that language and how meaningful is this? I think it's a sign that a lot of these processes, maybe the Paris one aside, are following the science and following the markets rather than leading. In this way, I think we know that 50 years from now, 70 years from now, fossil fuels are going to be a very small part of our economy if they're there at all. And the next couple of decades are going to be, you know, dominated by renewable build out, not fossil fuel build out. We sort of know that's in the near future. The question is, how quickly can we get to zero? And on that point, I don't think this agreement does much. Um, tripling renewable energy is good. It's a little better than probably most people were projecting um, going into the conference. We don't know if we're going to hit those targets, but if we do, it'll be progress. But on its own, it won't be sufficient to limit warming to the levels that we've been saying was necessary to prevent some really grim, catastrophic outcomes. And I think one legacy of this conference will be, we may look back on it and say, it was the moment that we all realized that we were not going to hit those targets. Yeah. Well, uh, what do you think it actually looks like to turn away? I mean, practically speaking, and you know, there's what we want to do what we are on track to do and what it reasonably looks like to go to get off of fossil fuels. And what do you and your sort of expert opinion think that looks like? Well, I think, you know, the low hanging fruit are the things that we already know how to do. We basically know how to um, provide power and electricity. We know how to drive our um, transportation um, in non-fossil fuel ways. We're not doing that yet. You know, the fossil fuels um, still dominate the global power sector. They most cars on the road are still internal combustion vehicles, but we know the transition looks like it probably means fewer gas stations and people charging their cars on their solar panels on their roofs. The challenging stuff is what are we going to do about heavy industry, agriculture, aviation? And these are things that we don't have such easy solutions for. So probably on that front, it's more R&D. But we have a little time to do that R&D. The thing that we don't have time to do is really dramatically and quickly replace fossil fuels with renewable resources in the areas that we know how to fix right now, which is to say, essentially, power, electricity, and transportation. D does it look like, Is do you imagine that it's kind of like a steep decline in fossil fuels? Does it level off? I mean, or is the transition gradual and steady and then spikes? So if we want to keep global warming to below 1.5 degrees, which I think is effectively impossible, it would mean getting all the way to zero Somewhere around 2040, we only have about five to eight years of current emissions before we completely exhaust that budget. If we're hoping to limit warming to 1.7 degrees, we have until about 2050. And under two degrees, we have maybe until 2070 or 2080. Um, those are slightly more manageable timelines, but none of the projections from any of the agencies suggest that we're going to see a rapid decline resembling any of those curves. What they project is that we're likely to see a peak in the next few years, followed by a long plateau. And that's why what's really necessary is not just that we build out renewables, it's that we figure out a way to draw down our fossil capacity. And there's very little in this agreement, or frankly, any initiative anywhere in the world that I think brings us close to that goal. So what I mean, what is the point of, of the, the sort of, is it conference of parties, yeah. the COP uh, symposia, as it were? I mean, there have been 28 of them and there's another one scheduled in two years. Let me paint an even more dystopian picture. If Donald Trump is reelected, I mean, what are the implications for multinational agreements if we have someone like Trump in the Oval Office? And and furthermore, what's the utility of having these kind of climate symposia if the United States and other Western countries aren't really leading the charge in the way that they need to? Well, I think to take the second question first, I think basically it's a test of how much rhetoric matters and leadership matters. These are not binding agreements. They're not 
enforceable in any way, but they do show a consensus among the world's leadership about where the future is heading. And they have helped in that way in the past. So in the Paris um, Agreement in 2015, that was where we established the 1.5 degree goal. And in the years since, we've talked about our progress against that benchmark every time. And we've really internalized the fact that that was important to try to get as close as we could to 1.5. And we've learned a lot about how different the world work looks, how much worse at 2 degrees, at 2.5, at 3. All of that is because of the rhetorical leadership that happened at Paris. It's not because Paris bound us to pursue that goal. It's because it taught us a different way of thinking about the future and what we needed to do to get there. Um, so it is possible for conferences like these to shape the future that way. But I think we're in a slightly different place with the global transition than we were back then, which is to say, as I mentioned a minute ago, almost everyone you ask knows that we're heading towards a fossil-free fu uh, fossil future. It's just a question of how quickly we're going to get there. And I don't think that rhetoric can really do all that much there. We need more innovation on more um, progress on finance, particularly for the global south. Um, they have a really hard time building their projects now. Um, and we need to move much faster in the rich world, even though in the rich world we are decarbonizing somewhat. As for what Donald Trump means, um, you know, I think that there's some hope in the fact that the markets are really moving this themselves. Yep. And five or 10 years ago, we talked about global warming as a moral burden that we'd have to undertake, but it was going to be costly and it was going to be difficult and therefore it required diplomacy. Now, everybody's Market rushing moves. to the green transition, not fast enough, yep. but I think that a set, a, a, an election of Donald Trump, as tragic and awful as that would be, um, would mean worse things for the United States than for the global climate challenge. David Wallace-Wells, always a wealth of information, if not optimism, on an important topic. That is our show for tonight. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.